0: morning, Barry. Sorry, you caught me. I was taking a little too long here to say good morning. Good morning, Bethel. That's right. Okay, we all know um, what happened on (laughs) September. Yeah, we need to pray for you. Yeah, yeah. We will pray for you, Barry. We love you. We all know what happened on September 11th, 2001. Almost 3,000 people lost their lives that day, and there were so many other ramifications of that catastrophe. Hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf Coast in 2005 and created the costliest natural disaster in U.S. history and almost 2,000 people lost their lives. In January of 2010, that earthquake that rocked Haiti claimed over 300,000 lives. What would Jesus have to say about these tragic events? I think quite a bit, Um, and certainly there's a lot that the Bible has to say about suffering and evil and the brokenness of this world. Um, But there are some who claim to be spokesmen for Jesus who have made some very interesting comments at times like this. So on the 700 Club in 2005, Pat Robertson blamed Hurricane Katrina on the issue of abortion in John Roberts' Supreme Court nomination. In 2010, he claimed that the earthquake was the result of a pact with the devil that Haiti made in order to have Satan's help to overcome the French and gain their independence in 1804. On September 13th, 2001, two days after the attacks, Pat Robertson of the the 700 Club invited Jerry Falwell onto his show to discuss the cause of the tragedy. Here's what Falwell said. The ACLU's got to take a lot of blame for this the 9-11 attacks, throwing God out of the public square, you know, et cetera. He said the pagans and the abortionists and the feminists and the gays and the lesbians who are actively trying to make that an alternative lifestyle, not to mention the ACLU, though he had already mentioned the ACLU, all of them who have tried to secularize America, I point the finger in their face and say, you help make this happen. And Robertson's response was, I totally concur. So what do you think of that? What they said. How about if we're throwing out blame, maybe we should say, what about the health and wealth televangelists? How much blame can we put on them? How about those who co-opt Christianity for political purposes? There's lots of guilt to spread around, right? And not all who are concerned about politics as Christians or involved in politics are guilty of that. But how much do we, how much blame do we put on those people? What would Jesus say? Well, part of the answer, and this is just part of the answer, the Bible addresses these issues from a lot of different angles, but part of the answer is found, a very important part of the answer is found in Luke 13. And that's our text for this morning. We've been out of the book of Luke um, for the last five weeks, and we had a short um, planned break and miniseries called Resting and Running. And now we're back in Luke, and we're at chapter 13, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 9. Um, this morning. As we head back in, we should do a quick little review and refresh our memories of where we've been. Um, It has been five weeks, and this isn't just important because we've been out for five weeks. The connection is actually supposed to be made as you begin reading chapter 13, because 13.1 says, now on the same occasion, okay, so he's linking what he's going to say in chapter 13 with what he just said in chapter 12. Okay, so let's look at those thematic links between chapter 12 and chapter 13. We'll do that in just a minute, but let's pray, or let's, let's read um, Luke 13, 1 to 9, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dive in and review um, the context, and, and then look at these nine verses. Jesus, Luke writes, Now on the same occasion, th- there were some present who reported to Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices, And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, behold, for 3 years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered the vineyard keeper and said to him, let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your living and active word that is sharper than a two-edged sword, and it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart, our hearts. I pray that we wouldn't resist that cutting that needs to happen. I pray that we would welcome it because that sword in your hands is meant to heal. So I pray that you would apply the scalpel of your word. Please, Lord. It's a sobering word, but we, we need to be sober. This is... Oftentimes, a very sobering world in which we live. I pray that you would give us ears attuned, attentive to you, not the talking heads all around us. I pray that, that we would learn to interpret reality, all that happens in this world, through the grid of your wisdom, through the grid of your revealed word. Teach us, shape us, help us. And Lord, where we need to repent, I pray that we would hear that as the good, gracious call of a patient, kind, merciful Savior. So lead us to repentance this morning for our good and your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's look back at chapter 12, little review and context. There's a uh, outline in the bulletin if that's helpful for you to follow along. Um, there's several distinct episodes in chapter 12, um, but there's some common themes that hold the chapter together. Life is a vapor. Death is inevitable. It's coming soon. Okay, so um, beyond this brief life, there's a judgment, there's a reckoning that's, that's coming, and it's greater than anything any court or judge or human can bring on this earth, and so we've got to live in light of our imminent and impending death, and we need to live in light of the fact that Jesus is coming. We should live watchful, vigilant, ready for the return of Christ. Lives. So look at twelve. If you want to just flip back a little bit here, 12, 1 to twelve. Just in summary, Jesus is saying, "Don't fear those who can kill the body, but after that, have nothing more that they can do. Fear Him." who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. So get your fear in the right place in light of God and eternity. In verses 8 and 9, Jesus says, everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess before the angels of God when I return. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. So this is serious call in light of the return of Christ. 12, 13 to 21, Jesus gives the parable, the rich fool. He thought he could just save up for big fat retirement, taking his ease and eating, drinking, being merry without any thought of God. And God woke him up from that daydream and he realized it was a nightmare. But it was real. So instead of storing up treasure for ourselves in light of the fact that life is short right, and eternity is long and it's coming soon, And Jesus is coming soon. Jesus says, 12, 22 to 34, don't be anxious about, don't seek after what the world seeks after. Okay, instead seek first the kingdom, the one that's going to last. And trust your Father who knows what you need and will give it to you. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. In 1235, through the end of the chapter, there's this call to be dressed in readiness, okay? Waiting for the return of Jesus. And this kind of readiness means that we're not going to live selfishly and abusively, okay, like that servant who, oh, he's not coming back anytime soon, and he starts to abuse the, the servants. We're not using people for our own game, but instead, in light of the return of Christ, we'll live faithfully as stewards of God's grace and gifts because Those to whom much has been given, much will be required. And then finally, just just look at verses 54 to 56. You'll see how these themes run through the chapter and then lead right on seamlessly into chapter 13, our text for this morning. Verses 54 to 56 say, say this, And he was also saying to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, A shower is coming. And so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, it will be a hot day. And it turns out that way. You hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky. But why do you not analyze this present time? And so thirteen one to 9 is going to give us help in how to analyze this present time. So second point, um, what, are, what are some of the responses to the problem of evil, the problem of suffering, Um, Perennial problem, it comes up all the time. And here is a significant biblical response to these problems. Look at verses 1 to 5. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus, by the way, he's a Galilean, might want to remember that, said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So, quick question here. Why are these people reporting this to Jesus? Can you think of why? Most likely it's one of two reasons, possibly both. Okay, So first, these self-appointed reporters are expecting Jesus to affirm their theology of suffering that says something like, suffering calamity strikes those who deserve it. Okay, these are the theological descendants of Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, Job's friends. Okay. So this reason, them thinking, hey, did you hear about this? What does that say about those Galileans? You see what they were? They're kind of baiting him for that. And there's some interesting background that that would have been obvious to the first century readers, but oftentimes is not to us, you know, contemporary today, Bible readers with all kinds of historical cultural distance between the Bible times and ours. Galilee, if if you can do a little picture of the Holy Land here, Um, Jess Foggy could do this probably really well for us right now. Um, She's been in the Holy Lands for the last how many weeks? Um, So Jerusalem's down here. Galilee's up here, separated by roughly like 65, 70 miles to the south end of Galilee. Galilee's a region, and then 90 miles up here near Capernaum, okay? So Samaria lay in between. Nazareth is kind of on the south side. Jerusalem's down here. And so the Jews in this northern area in a sense, are the vestiges of the northern kingdom of Old Testament times. And because of the surrounding influences of other non-Jewish peoples through the centuries, it was, it was more racially mixed. Okay, culturally, they were considered the equivalent of, as one, one commentator writes, country cousins by those in Judea and Jerusalem. Okay, in other words, they would consider those up in the north like people from West Virginia. Okay. Thank you, Greg. Um, You know what I'm saying. So they would have been considered unsophisticated. Even their accent was different. Hey, this is what gave Peter away. Okay, listen to these two texts. You don't have to take the time to turn there. After an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. This is member at the trial, and Peter is at a distance and whatever. Matthew 26 says this in the parallel. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. So they probably talk like this. Okay? Something like that. If you're a northerner, sorry. If you're a southerner, no offense. I'm trying to make a point here. That's all. Okay, so one commentator writes this, the result is that even an impeccably Jewish Galilean in first century Jerusalem was not among his own people. He was as much a foreigner as an Irishman in London or a Texan in New York City. Okay? So they are a long way from the center, the northern kingdom, you know, Galilee is a long way from the center of religious life for the Jews, especially where scrupulous observance took place. So they were considered less than scrupulous, not as serious, not as devout in general than Jews in Jerusalem and Judea, kind of like watered down Jews. So you can see why these Religious leaders, they balked at Jesus being a Messiah from from Nazareth? Jesus was a Galilean, okay? And you can see why if these folks are Judeans who are reporting, they would expect Jesus as a rabbi to criticize the Galileans, those less than devout Jews, okay? They probably deserved it. That's what those people are like up there. Okay, the other potential reason why they're reporting this is that the Jews were expecting, these Jews were expecting Jesus to respond with some sort of similar anti-Roman sentiment that filled their hearts, the hearts of the Jews at the time, which is understandable because of the oppression that they experienced. So what Pilate did in this case is horrible. Okay, it was vicious, it's sacrilegious. I mean, do you get what the language means? These Galileans were going to worship, to offer sacrifices, most likely in Jerusalem, right? That's where the temple was. That's where the sacrifices were offered. And so Pilate murders them in the act of sacrifice such that their blood is mingled with the blood of their sacrifices. That is horrible. It's it's atrocious. So it could be that both of those things are going on, okay? It's probably one or the other, maybe both. The way that Jesus responds leads you to think that it's the first one, primarily, because he says, do you think that they were worse sinners? So he's he's knowing that where they were going was this theology of sin and suffering that's like Job's friends. Okay? But the reasons aren't the most important thing. The most important thing is how Jesus responds. He doesn't say, they got what was coming to them. You know those Galileans. You know, he did not give some Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson explanation of the causes of this atrocity. Nor does he say, Pilate will get his in due time. Patience, my dear zealots. God will strike, strike them and, and, his, and their wicked regime will be down soon enough. Something like that. He doesn't say that either. Let's also say, while we're at it, Jesus does not say, you know, God had nothing to do with this. He's just as sad as we are. As if God is this sympathetic yet impotent to intervene bystander. So Jesus, with this response, it's not sentimental. Okay, He most definitely did not moonlight for, for the greeting card industry when construction work was slow. Okay, He is remarkably unsentimental here. Look at how he responds to the problem of evil. Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. When he says likewise, he doesn't mean a tower is going to fall on you or you're going to be killed in front of the altar. Likewise, in the sense that something happens, can happen suddenly without opportunity to repent. Which goes right along with the theme of readiness and vigilance. So what Pilate perpetrated was an atrocity. What happened in Siloam was a catastrophe. Okay? These kinds of things happen. They oftentimes challenge our faith, especially the closer they come to our lives. These are the kinds of things that people in the world point to as evidence against God being good or even existing at all. I mean, what if your family member had been killed in the act of sacrifice to God, like one of those Galileans? What if your family member had been killed when that tower fell? Evil and pain and suffering is a problem. Though, by the way, it's only a real problem for people who believe in God. Atheists don't even get to have a problem. Evil? What do you mean evil? In an impersonal world that's just survival of the fittest and it's just cold, you know, mechanical wheels turning? What are you so bothered by? Of course it's a dog-eat-dog world. Why is it bothering you? What are you so, why are you so angry at the God you don't believe in? So it is a problem. And this text is not the only thing that the Bible says about these issues. But we need to listen carefully. I, I can't tell you... In one message, what all the other things are as far as how the Bible responds to suffering and evil, we need to listen to this text this morning and kind of stay home here. There's a lot that we need to hear here. In both cases, Jesus responds to these tragedies by calling these people to repentance. What what is your response to the problem of evil and suffering? How do you respond to others when they raise these problems? Okay, let me just give a few things to ponder briefly before we move on. One, everyone poses the problem of evil. It's such a typical question in and outside the church, and it's a good question. It's an important question. Um, It's a big question. But have you ever noticed that not very many people pose the problem of pleasure question? Why in the world do we guilty sinners, guilt, where'd that come from? All of us, guilty, not even living up to our own standards, let alone God's. Why in the world do we experience so much good? I mean, God knows us. He, he made us. He knows what's best for us. And we little bits of pottery have rejected and raged against the creator and potter. We've bitten again and again the hand that feeds us. Why in the world does he keep giving our hearts? keep? <laughs> Why in the world does he keep our hearts beating? Continue to give us his air to breathe, eyes to see sunrises and sunsets and cause the rain to fall on the earth to give us food, and on and on and on. So one thing, there's another question, flip it. Another another thing, this unsentimental call to repent in the face of atrocity and catastrophe, it can seem cold and indifferent. And if this is all that the Bible said in response to suffering and evil, it probably would be. But this is one important piece. It's not cold and indifferent. Jesus also, in other places, he wept at the tomb of Lazarus. I think he just hated the effects of the fall. He knew he was going to raise him. But the the sadness and the brokenness that's come in as a result of sin, he wept. Okay, we, he suffered infinitely. I mean, the Bible says a lot of other things. Let me just, a few little bullet points here. Jesus suffered infinitely that we might not have to suffer infinitely. But even this unsentimental call to repentance is a result of his patience and his mercy, like we read in Romans 2. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God, it's the kindness of God that would say repent because there's still time. So this, even though it can seem cold and indifferent, it's actually loving and gracious and kind. And then third little quick point, suffering and calamity is a call for repentance Like C.S. Lewis famously said, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So they may have expected patience, they'll get theirs, vengeance will come. Instead, they got repent or you will likewise perish. Okay, he doesn't encourage or whip up this anti-Roman sentiment or agenda. He turns it to a personal repentance agenda. And the reason he does that is because the deepest source of the problem of evil is in here, not out there. It's in us. Okay, third point, the problem of evil is in us. So Jesus could have responded to this in a lot of different ways. The fact that he went to repentance twice has got to be noted. Okay, why did he do that? It's because our need for mercy is greater than our need for answers to all our questions, even though the Bible gives lots of other answers. Okay, we we really can call evil evil. We really need to think through the problem of evil and give a wise and multifaceted biblical response in the church and to those who don't believe and have honest and, and maybe angst-filled questions outside the church. But we really can't overlook the fact that all suffering and pain is a call to look in and deal with our biggest problem, our own sin and guilt before a holy God. And so if we do, if we look in, we're going to stop railing at God for letting certain things happen, We're going to stop railing at others for causing bad things to happen, and we're going to start looking with increasing joyful thanksgiving at the glorious solution to the problem of our evil. Our evil. There is a glorious solution to the problem of evil that is in us. It's our evil. And so we're going to look to Jesus, and we're going to rejoice, and we're going to never get over that amazing mercy and kindness and patience. The solution to the problem of evil, our evil, is in Jesus. So point four, here's this the solutions in Jesus, okay? So here's this Galilean peasant rabbi on his way to Jerusalem to suffer. There's a turning point in chapter nine, verse 51. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. and The reason he's heading there is because he set his face like flint because he knows he's gonna die. That's why he came. So he's from Galilee, and he's heading to Jerusalem, and he's going to die and suffer suffer a brutal, shameful, undeserved death on the cross at the hand of Pilate. Okay, so he's baited here with a report about the Galileans who died as if their death in this way meant that they must have been really bad sinners. So do you see how Jesus' response is a setup for the gospel? You see how Jesus' response is a setup for where he's headed so that they can interpret it correctly and analyze the times? The cross, his bloody death at the hands of Pilate. There's three places in the Gospels where Pilate's name is referenced. Chapter 3, when it just gives a general, this is the time in which all this happened, 13 here and then 23 at the trial. I think if you're reading Luke, you should notice, oh, 13 and 23, we should connect those dots. His bloody death at the hands of Pilate will not be evidence that he was a great sinner. No, his death in Jerusalem is the plan all along. He's not going to die because he's a great sinner. He's going to die because we all are great sinners. He's going to die because we're all sinners who need to stop looking around in judgment at all those great sinners getting what's coming to them and start realizing what's coming to us if we don't repent. So his death in Jerusalem that's coming will not be evidence of divine judgment on Jesus for his sin, as if he were an imposter. No, his death in Jerusalem will mean opportunity. He's taking our place. Opportunity for us great sinners to have opportunity to be forgiven and have peace with God so that when the end comes, in death, chapter 12, in death or at the return of Christ... It will be well with our souls. We won't have to dread or fear that day. We won't have to fear the reckoning. We won't have to fear the judgment because it's already fallen on Jesus in our place on the cross. So these people that Jesus was addressing, they were not Pilate, but they had blood on their hands, just like we do. We are not Pilate, and we have not likely shed blood like he did, but we have blood on our hands. There's this interesting little background detail that probably would have been assumed in the minds of the first readers, but again, we don't know the sacrificial system and you know, the, as, as well as they did. So one commentator noted it. He said, The sacrifice of the Passover lamb is the only sacrifice in which non-priests generally participated fully. Huh. So the people at the time, if their blood was going to get mingled, they would know, They knew what time it was. They they were participating in the Passover lamb. So these Galileans could have quite possibly been participated in the Passover sacrifice, and if so, they were trusting in the blood of the lamb to rescue them from the judgment of God. It is possible that these Galileans were killed on account of their fidelity, not their sin. That certainly has been the case for plenty of martyrs throughout biblical and church history. So trusting in the blood of the Lamb, even if if you suffer unjustly, it's not evidence of God's displeasure. When we trust our Lamb that was slain, even our unjust sufferings, our atrocities, calamities, catastrophes, the pain and the suffering, they cannot steal the living hope, the unkillable promises that are given to those who repent and follow Jesus. So now, so this is a beautiful setup for where Jesus is heading. All of these texts just fit as a part of the big gospel arc storyline that is unfolding here in Luke. So Jesus now illustrates and furthers his point by means of a parable. Look at verses 6 to 9. He began telling this parable, a man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, let it alone, sir, for this year too until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine, but if not, cut it down. Now, whenever you see parable in the Gospels, might want to mark this down. Quick interpretive rule. There, there are some interpretive rules, some guidelines, some help, some advice. Like if you're reading a proverb, it's a proverb. It's not a promise. It's different. If you're reading Revelation, you need some other help, a lot of help, OK? Because apocalyptic is different from history, OK? So this is a parable, and parables typically are firing a bullet, not buckshot. Parables don't typically have a bunch of little points. They have a main point, okay? You can't press the details of parables as if there's some kind of one-to-one allegorical equivalent for every detail in the parable. If you do that, you'll come up with some real weirdness, like, for instance, in this one. If you wanted to press the details, you would probably come up with something like this God the Father wanted to blast all of Israel right away, cut it down. And then God the Son argued him out of it. Is that the point? No, it's not the point. Okay, so again, be careful with parables, don't press the details. It's a big picture. It's usually one main and central point. Now, in this case, <laughs> there are actually two points, but they're inextricably linked, and they're two sides of the same coin. This parable is a warning. He's illustrating, in a sense, what he just said in verses 1 to 5, but it's also a merciful call to repentance from a patient God, okay? So... Yes, the, the possibility of being cut down is there. Be warned. But the owner of the vineyard waited. <laughs> and that's exactly the position that these people are in as Jesus is telling them to repent. See how it's two sides of the same coin? Okay, that's the big picture point. So the reason we have not personally been killed by atrocity or catastrophe is not because of our righteousness. It would be really dangerous to look out at those people that suffer out there really bad, or places in the world that suffer really bad, and think that that is evidence of God's just blanket disapproval, and if we prosper, which is interesting to define what that means, that must be an automatic sign of His favor. No. The tree that produces no fruit will be cut down in judgment. And so as we hear this parable, we need to ask ourselves, are we the real thing? Is there any fruit to prove the fact that we are alive in Christ? If not, repent. There's still time. You see, it's it's even merciful. Even if that's the reality, God's merciful. He's patient. But know that his patience will not last forever. Today is the day of salvation. Okay? Okay? So, you can see how it all hangs together, these first five verses in response to these reporters, problem of evil, and then the illustration from the parable of the fig tree. Now, just want to close with a few more thoughts for reflection and application. First, take care when speaking of the judgment of God. Okay, I hope that none of us ever talk like Pat Robertson or Jerry Falwell like they did. In our family, behind closed doors, no. With your friends and neighbors, no. In the workplace, no. Please don't talk like that and misrepresent Jesus. Please don't talk like that and misrepresent this church. Be careful when speaking of the judgment of God. Now, is Romans 1 true? Absolutely. It says, for the wrath of God is being revealed. So that's part of understanding the times, understanding reality. Absolutely. I'm not saying that's not true. But what I am saying is we dare not presume that we know the mind of God knowing all the reasons why He does what He does. And we dare not have our select bully pulpit sins, such as homosexuality, for instance, all the while giving materialism and all kinds of other idolatries a pass. Okay, so we dare not have Job's friends as our theological fathers. Okay, God roundly rebuked them for their folly. So when others suffer, we dare not wonder what they did to deserve it. We all deserve it, and much worse. And the corollary is true. When we don't experience disaster, we dare not arrogantly chalk it up to our righteousness or being better or more deserving of, quote-unquote, blessing. So we need to take care when speaking of the judgment of God. Secondly, speak of the judgment of God you might not be tempted to follow in Pat Robertson's footsteps. Praise God. In fact, you might think he's a nutcase. But that's just the problem. You don't want anyone to think you are a nutcase. You may never talk of the judgment of God like Pat Robertson. Okay, that's good. But do you ever talk of the judgment of God? Are you ashamed of the judgment of God? Are you embarrassed by the judgment of God? Remember back in chapter 12 in the context, and I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the son of man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Are you more afraid of that label? Getting that label being that person in somebody's eyes than you are afraid for your friends and family members and neighbors and coworkers' eternal future. Jesus wasn't. Thankfully, he spoke the truth in love because he loved us. He said those hard things. And if we don't say those hard things, it's not because we're loving and merciful and gracious. We're cowardly. And I've been guilty many times. But we need to let Jesus shape us here. So have you ever talked about the judgment of God with someone who doesn't believe? Have you ever? Ever. This is serious stuff. This is reality. I told a friend yesterday, this text was weighing on me. I said, I'm not trying to jam anything down your throat, but, and talked about the gospel, I said, if your house was burning down and I was not banging on your window, I would not be a good friend. Thirdly, real quick, we touched on this a little bit earlier under point two, but when bad things happen to good people, when that kind of stuff gets thrown around, that's a great opportunity. Not to score, you know, apologetic points or something like that, but to talk about reality and shed the light of the gospel and the truth of God in the conversation. So when bad things happen to good people, again, what about the problem of pleasure? Pleasure. When, or when we, you and I, have that emotional, visceral reaction to why do bad things happen to good people, let's turn it on its head and ask why do good things happen to bad people. That's us. And if we humbly say we're the bad people <laughs> to those people around us, if that's the kind, of, the kind of reputation that Christians get, that we are humble and know our sin and how gracious God has been to us in Christ, I think that's going to be bringing a completely different tone to the conversation when the problem of evil is on the table. And I think if we're asking that question more often, why do good things happen to bad people? We might be better prepared to handle the atrocities and catastrophes when they do come. For instance, this was beautiful. Russell sent me this. I stuck it on the blog. You can watch it. Russell sent um, Monday night, I think. Did you send that video? Anyway, So, Nate Saint died in the 50s, Palm Beach, missionary to the um, Alka Indians, he and four other missionaries, right? They were speared to death. And then he had a son named Steve, and his wife went back into that tribe, the ones that killed her husband and the other women's, other wives' husbands, okay? Okay and they saw a revival in this tribe, and one of the men who killed his father, Steve Saint, basically, he became like a grandfather to him. Loving relationship, just beautiful testimony of God's grace. So, Steve Saint knows suffering. In fact, not just because of his dad being killed. When his daughter was late teenager, she was on a missions trip. She came back from that missions trip. They were having a welcome home celebration party, and she said, my head hurts, Dad. And they went back into the back room, and he and his wife prayed over her. The Lord would take the pain away. And she died that night. I can't even imagine. So this man knows, suffering. Then he's been spending his life. This is where we can't let bad theology shape who we are. He's spending his life for the sake of, he's, he's using technology, this company called iTech. They're building this flying car so that missionaries can use it. It's like people that don't have a lot of training, they can get the gospel into these remote areas and, and they've done it. Like it's amazing. So he's spending his life and here he's testing some new equipment and a safety strap breaks and he's paralyzed. And they're doing this video a week after the paralysis and he's laying in this bed with a vent on and a neck brace and he's struggling for breath. And he's just saying, you know, people ask me, you know, struggle with why. And he remembered back to one of the wives who who. When her husband was killed, she said, I just never thought to ask God why. And it's not because she had her head in the sand. It's because she knew her God. And so he said one of the, one of the most encouraging things is that I'm not asking why. He's not thinking, what did I do? What did I do? No. Like to hell with Job's friend's theology. That's where it came from. That's where it needs to go back to. We have to disconnect that, and he so got that, that he's laying on a bed, and I think there may be some improvement. There was some surgery, and apparently someone said that he was able to get up and walk, which, or, or at least begin to walk. I have no idea where things are at right now, but this, was, this video was taken before any of that. I mean, he, he for all he knew, he could be paralyzed for the rest of his life. Um. But he so understood biblical theology and a theology of suffering that he was saying in this video, don't hold anything back. Spend your life for the sake of the gospel. No holds barred. Go. Just keep going. It's beautiful. Go watch this video. It's beautiful. So we need this. Text. We needed to seep down in and shape us that our biggest problem is repentance. And Jesus came and he died at the hands of Pilate, shed his blood so that we could have our biggest problem dealt with. And then we could say amazingly, like Steve Saint, like the Apostle Paul. I don't consider the sufferings of this life worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits us. And then finally, just a brief note about the connection between repentance and fruit, okay? Because there's this fig tree parable. And the man had the fig tree and he came looking for fruit on it and he didn't find any fruit on it, so he said, Cut it down. We're talking about repentance here and the call to repentance. So if, if you were reading through the book of Luke in one sitting, you would think, Whoa, chapter three. So John the Baptist began saying to the crowds who were coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. See the connection? Repent. And then the fig tree. John the Baptist, forerunner of Jesus, blazing the path for him to come. Bear fruit in keeping with Repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones God's able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. He, he was calling these people to repent because that kind of getting cut down was real danger for them if they didn't repent. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So this Call to repentance, this parable, the fig tree, is a fruit check. It is a call to repentance for all of us. Not somebody out there, not, oh, I wish so and so was here, for us to look in. But what it isn't, it is not a call to navel gazing. Okay, fruit checks are important. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, we should examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. But, as the Puritans used to say, for every one look in, take ten to Christ. That's a good ratio. Because the answer's not in here. If we are in danger, if we are not the real thing, if we have wandered, whatever the problem is, and sometimes we can't figure it out, it seems like our hearts just a big tangled mess of, ah, I can't even understand myself. It doesn't matter. The answer's not in here. It's out there. It's at the cross. It's in Jesus. So if we are in sin, there's things getting in the way of our relationship with God, whether we've never really come to Christ, but we've kind of gone through the motions, or if we're in Christ, but we're wandering and we're drifting. Sin is like a bunch of junk damming up the river that is your life. And it creates a stagnant pool and nothing but algae, nasty algae will grow in that stagnant pool. Repentance is like removing the obstructions so that the water can flow and water the earth of your life so that you can bear fruit. So we need to be careful how we respond to this parable. This is a call to repent and bear fruit, not a call to look in at our lives and say, ooh, well, I need to just peel every stinking layer of the onion ad nauseum. It's also not a call to say, ooh, I better, I better get some fruit. Okay, Paul Tripp calls that apple nailing. Oh, I, I need more fruit. So he talks about getting his basket full of apples, and if, if his wife saw him do this, she'd think he's nuts. He's going outside with a, with a staple gun and you know, getting on the ladder, and there's an apple tree that's not really producing much, so he starts just tacking apples all over the tree. Oh, now look at my beautiful tree. You're no better off. So, this is so helpful. I, I don't remember who I heard say this, but maybe it was Tim Keller. The fruit doesn't make the tree; the tree makes the fruit. So we don't add fruit if we if we look in and say, "Oh, I don't know if I'm the real thing," or if we're wandering or whatever. We don't busy ourselves with a bunch of good works trying to tack it onto our lives to get approved in God's sight and feel better about ourselves. We can't do that in our own strength. We need to examine the roots. We need to repent. And the water God just starts tearing away the obstructions and the water starts flowing. His water, the living water it starts flowing into our lives and He causes the growth. He causes the fruit to be buried. To be born. So this is a sobering passage, but it is a sweet passage, because along with the reality of our, each of us are quickly approaching deaths, and in light of the return of Christ, the one who warns us, the one who calls us to repentance, is the one who died for us. And so his warnings are His mercy. And his kindness and his patience writ large. So let's look up to Jesus and repent and watch the water flow and the fruit grow. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, what a treasure it is, and we can so easily have the tendency with texts that seem harsh or seem, not warm and fuzzy, the ones that we like to underline, can think that we should go elsewhere to really be fed. And we thank you that all Scripture is inspired by you and it's profitable. And I thank you for Luke 13 and I pray that you would guard and keep us from being conformed to this world. Give us your word. Transform us by the renewing of our minds so that we can test and discern and approve what your will is, your good, pleasing, and perfect will. We can analyze the times we can know our hearts and be honest with ourselves. We can know you for who you are and not some caricature of our own making. And even the texts that cut, that we can know that every stroke of your double edged sword is intended to bring healing, to cut away deadness, and to. Breathe life, give life, and enable us to bear fruit. So we thank you for the good news of the gospel of repentance. And we pray that you would give us grace to heed it and to share it. In Jesus' name, amen. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. You are dismissed.